Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, everyone. Second-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. Hi, Edgar Parks. And we're joined by our co-host, uh, our special guest co-host, um, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Howdy. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent UCR, UCR Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. So on today's show, we're going to talk about um, psychological and psychiatric treatment in prisons and um, people uh, that are incarcerated and it, is it, it's what types are most effective, um, uh, you know, the issues surrounding this. I mean, frequently it's been said that basically our prisons are the primary means of mental health treatment um, in our society, which is really sad and depressing. Um, so we're going to talk about the various issues that are kind of related to that. Hopefully that will be interesting. But I, I also always want to leave the time in the beginning to talk about any new studies or any kind of interesting things that might have happened during y'all's your week. Any, any, any Anything interesting happened during your week that you'd like to start off with? Or any I'm interesting getting a puppy. What? A kind of puppy. <laughs> sorry. Are you a dog? I'm so, so you're a dog person. I take it. Is I this your dog first person. dog? This is my first puppy. Okay. First dog. Why did you feel like you were ready for this? Um, well, I went through a recent breakup. <laughs> Always good. This is a re- this is a rebound dog. Like, honestly. <laughs> a rebound. No, I've I've given it a few months. I've I've been wanting a dog. Um, I've been wanting to train this dog to be a therapy dog so I can bring it in with me to clinic um, and it can help patients. How did you select um, this particular type of dog? What type of dog actually is Actually, my friends recommended it to me because oh. the schnoodle is known as being a good therapy dog and that's what I'm getting. Wow. A schnoodle. That makes so much yeah, sense. Yes. I was wondering so why that, I get it. Yeah, I get it's it. It's a calm dog. A schnauzer and, and poodle. Because yes. I, had, I had asked you when we were texting, I had asked you, I was like, oh, what about a rescue? you and then you were you nope a schnoodle and, I, and now and, i'm like yes. oh and yeah. it's also hypoallergenic i did look at rescue mm. shelters but there weren't a lot of hypoallergenic but dogs you don't there. want a traumatized dog when you're trying to help traumatize patients yeah no, that's, point. I don't know. a schnoodle i think is a good choice so are you gonna is this dog gonna go on special training or you're gonna train this person? i'm gonna this train dog. It. okay yeah i might you know, therapy in the dog i might need yeah maybe a, a class for She's watching YouTube videos. You're going to sign your own okay. certificate therapy. <laughs> but that's going to take time, right? It's, it's going to take right? time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a puppy. Okay. So I'm expecting a lot of mayhem over the keep next us, Keep us up to few months. date. Remember, it's all about the therapeutic alliance. Just, <laughs> just keep that alliance going with your schnoodle. Any, anyone else have any kind of uh, studies or any interesting things they read during the week? Well, I, I just came across this today. It's a recent study or finding that um, says that looking at baby teeth might offer clues about autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's a new study from the ECA School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and another institute, Karolinska in Sweden, Sweden, what they found that the metallic compounds present in some baby teeth reveals that children with autism and DHD have irregular metabolism of several metals like zinc and cooper and they call it might be a bridge between understanding, you know, why these disorders happen and linking genetics and environment, which is something okay, being so controversial. They wow. analyzed the composition of baby teeth and they found an elevated levels of zinc and copper. They didn't say the levels, at least not in what I read. It's more like several differences 
in the elements of, me- oh. of the so metabolism of these metals. How did they oh, get man. the baby teeth for this study? Like, we, we just need one of your child's teeth because we want to know why he has We're going to grind it up and you'll never see it again. <laughs> Good yeah. luck with those memories. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. It's interesting. Until they win. I mean, I'm sure they it's more like a new baby thing. teeth fall out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Extra yeah, tooth fairy money. Well, right. are you going to keep your kid's baby teeth, or do you feel like you're going to give it to science? And that's baby. early science for knowing that your kid has ADHD, right? And it's like lost the first tooth. Those are early diagnoses. Kindergarten teacher. Oh, you know, he's not following directions when when we ask him to. Uh, what are you doing, kindergarten? Throw a ball. I'm 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 lost right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm just what, saying it's early to diagnose. ADHD when like all kids oh. do is oh, right, right. run around and you know play with stuff yeah well it doesn't say like when is this a longitudinal study they... this is like no, a new correlation maybe finding that they're gonna probably look more into okay alright well, and w- w- what is the most recent um, uh, like uh, how, how do we know um, why uh, do we have any recent uh, most recent theories about why autism uh, why there's elevated autism rates right now It's good. it's been shooting up last what 20 30 years we have we have no clue. Yeah. So this could be a possible clue. Th- that's what we're trying to link environment genetics. So it's a possibility. Well, I have a um, a study. This is from the uh, Journal of Sexual Medicine. I'm going to try to always give, like like you did, Edgar, the citation because I feel I, I don't do that enough. So this is Journal of Sexual Medicine, and they found that group therapy, group CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for hypersexual disorder, was effective. And so, what did this uh, group therapy involve? It involved assertiveness skills training, um, interpersonal um, behavioral activation, um, mostly for assertiveness, ability to resolve conflicts well, and also behavioral functional analysis, meaning like, you know, when, when are you having this hypersexual behavior? You know, you, can you link the dots between, well, when, when I feel this, or I think this, or this environment, or that environment leads to more acting out sexually so that people can learn, um, you know, uh, these behavioral chains. So they can stop them or prevent them, um, but so it was effective. And one of the reasons they're speculating it was effective is that you can talk about these very deeply personal and often shameful kinds of behaviors um, in a group, in a group format, where it's kind of accepting and you can just deal with it, with it openly. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I appreciate that. I just think any time there's money and expertise put into helping sexual disorders. It's got to be applauded. People that are willing to, you know, people from um, with the researcher background that can be doing anything that are doing this thing where the, sti- the stigma often spills onto these people, and which is so archaic and ridiculous. I just have to, I think that bravery has to be applauded. And, and the fact that we're helping these um, people is, is excellent and long overdue. Yeah, I definitely think people with sexual disorders are pretty on the lower rung of society. But there's a lot of folks that are mostly men, but not all. But there's a lot of folks that have sexual um, disorders. I think many, many more than than we know or may ever know. I uh, think true, it's, because it's so living. shameful, and then you're yeah. at the bottom of society as soon as you rec- you recognize or you say to talk about it. Okay, so it might, might, that might have been a segue to um, what we're going to talk about is prison reform, which there, there can be a lot of sexual offenses and people that are in prison. Um, but we, we want to talk about, you know, what kinds of effective treatment is there? Um, like, what, what are we trying to do? Is this, are we trying to treat them? Are we trying to punish them? I mean, I know that, you know, when I was, I was kind of prepping for the show, I was recognizing that, um, you know, there are some new programs out that say, 
maybe it's not just a simple matter of having effective mental health treatment in prisons or in incarceration, which is currently where we're kind of at. You need to treat both the mental health issues that are there effectively, but also the criminality part of it. So there's some sort of criminalness mm-hmm. behavior. Right. You need to be yeah. hip and sophisticated right. and understand, maybe do a behavioral chain analysis where you can right. also manage and control that part too. That, yeah, that's part of most of the anti-recidivism. That's part of most, no, I don't know about most, that's part of many of the anti-recidivism groups that are done in prisons. Um, and I shouldn't say many and speak as if they're so common because such so many of these these things that are supposedly being offered at prisons are not and are, and these rooms that are set aside for these things are just housing like what? additional what kind people of things? uh like classrooms like th- like very basic services you would think it would be offered in prisons are you know oh hey sorry um we're just going to put 50 bunk beds in this room or you know it's, mm-hmm. we're not going to can I start by putting things in a little perspective and retake what you said initially oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, about um, saying that correctional facilities are probably the largest provider of mental health, but I agree with mm. everybody here that they're not really treating it adequately or addressing the need for it. And I like numbers, so let me give you some numbers. So from my research, and this go from uh, American Psychology Association, NAMI, and other groups, it's about 2 million people with mental illness get booked every year to go to jail. And out of those, um, out of actually the people who are booked, 15%, 15% of those men and 30% of those women booked have serious mental illness. And only about maybe 80 to 40-something percent get some sort of treatment, but it's not the adequate treatment, which goes back to when we were just talking about it. And and we, we cannot say why is this happening, right? And I feel like... From all, all the reading that I did, what is not, stood out is like people who are in crisis, whether they're manic, high schizophrenic, suicidal, want to kill someone else because of mental illness, they usually see a law enforcement person before they see a doctor, right? And they're not prepared sometimes to actually dis- make that distinct, dis- mm-hmm. distinguish that, and they end up being in jail. Right. And then the consequences are that one, they're in jail. Let's say someone was psychotic, stole someone, something from the store, which is minor. They don't get a, a, a court here until a, a month later. In the meantime, they don't get treatment. They get worse. In the meantime, they might be paranoid and assault someone. They get more time, and it's just a cycle, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one, one of the kind of shocking statistics about um, unarmed African-American folks that were killed or shot by police um, a, a significant proportion had mental health histories. So what's going on? I, I, I feel like that is a, a huge thing. Oh, they were on disability. They had mm-hmm. some sort of disability, established disability. And so what's what's going on with that? I mean, I don't want to blame it all on the police and police training. But I think I, we're also getting to a... We're, we're focusing on actually... A, a, this conversation is focusing on a pretty disproportionate part of the prison population. I think we have to, for fairness sake, say that... In our country, with mass incarceration, most of the people in uh, the prison system not only don't have what we would call, or at least previous to their being incarcerated, didn't have what we would call serious emotional disturbance, um, they have not really committed a crime that most people would consider, um, you know, a menace to society kind of crime that needs someone to be isolated from society for. So... You know, um, 
it, the same things that that one might be able to get away with in a white community, in a community of color, for the last uh, I think maybe thirty to fifty years have led to prison pipeline outcomes, and that's where the population of our prisons comes from for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, and once you get mixed in the system, you, you the, the recidivism, recidivism um, is, is is higher. Yeah, Sixty it's to seventy percent for right? most. Yeah. Right. I actually saw a statistic about how if you come in with medication, it's about a 50% drop-off rate. Like oh, 50% are just, yeah, just going to stop oh, yeah. med- medication. No. So we're already ending treatment, psychiatric treatment at least, for 50% of folks that go to That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Now, I, I know that the, the, the percentage is a little bit higher for folks that have schizophrenia, these psychotic disorders. But still, it's important with bipolar disorders, or antidepressants, and anxiety. Uh, what about also just things like solitary confinement, how that can really exacerbate mental health symptoms. And just, so not only are we not treating, but that can actually make it much worse. All, all I think, prison outcomes are are exacerbating for mental health, but that's particularly, there's there's kind of an interesting irony here. So the solitary, the solitary confinement idea was largely made popular uh, by religious organizations in the U.S. that felt that, um, Solitude and contemplation would be healing for, wow. uh, you know, dealing with um, one's past criminality, and that oh, you just need to go reflect alone in solitude for several years, and that's can, how. Like, can I ask you a question? <laughs> well, go ahead. What penitence, right? Right, exactly. Can, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is the, is the point of that to reflect on the bad things that you've done? Yeah, and then right. generate shame. Well, and get yes. in touch with the higher power. And, yes, exactly. Because I mean, when our you country. initially started that, I was thinking, oh, so you could just be deeply in prayer and then like a meditative prayer. But no, that sounds like you're just well. You so want, there's the just irony. Go and be alone, and then think about what you did. Young, yeah, and it, so this man. is where where the irony is, right? So there's this huge organization that I happen to be a part of in the United States called Vipassana, where, that basically takes people and allows them to uh, sit alone for two weeks to half a year in contemplation and meditate like 13 hours a day, and you get one meal and then like an apple a day, and and it's and there's no electronics, no eye contact, no talking, no writing, no exercise, and. This is now being done as a prison reform, and they've had some success in the south of the United States and in Georgia with implementing some of these meditation programs. The interesting wow. thing is like they're sort of saving people from, so, from prison and the, the consequences of violence, which is solitary confinement, by giving them solitary confinement. <laughs> I guess it's all about context. <laughs> it's all about context. What, right. what is the name of this again? Vipassana. It's, it's Vipassana? Pro- I think it's the largest meditation okay. group in the world. Now, do you do this, Vipassana? I do, yeah. How often have you done this? Uh, twice. It's I can only tolerate it every so often. It's, it's that sounds very, very, very emotionally yeah. difficult. Yeah. Wow. Well, if you've just joined us, listeners, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched. We're talking about prisons and uh, mental health treatment at prisons and uh, what's effective and, and perhaps any kind of reforms that we've been, um, you know, that, that are out there. Um, we, are, we are joined by our, our hosts, um, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, Dr. Edgar Ortega, and our special guest co-host, Dr. Alan Atkins. So, okay, so so now have any of you actually worked at a prison or with incarcerated folks? I worked at Patton State Hospital. Same. Our program works there. We rotate there, I mean. What 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 do months. you feel, based on your experience, what do you feel is the most effective treatment for people that have committed serious crimes and also have a mental health issue? Tell me your ideal program. That like if you had 
not unlimited funding. Don't go crazy, but just I I don't know enough about prison reform to speak on this. I I, that's why I'm asking you about your own personal experience. So I've I or sorry, did were you gonna? I worked I've worked at a few prisons. Uh, It's been I I'd say about half of my career since since high school, I guess. Um, And I first worked in a prison in Argentina and then worked in some prisons throughout the U.S. Um, And my most recent work in a prison was implementing prison reform. Um, And what I think what we did worked fairly well. Uh, So it's through the lens of transformative justice or in a more moderate form, restorative justice. And transformative justice is on the premise of let's involve um, introspection about the crime and sometimes even the survivor of the crime in the healing process and that can be you know uh, that can that can be a very problematic idea and and at other times it can be a very valuable idea but we we had a group that had different modules addressing toxic masculinity addressing um like responsibility to society addressing connecting reconnecting with the people in your life on the outside that you think are the good influences and nurturing those relationships and how to disconnect from the bad relationships Having groups like that is helpful. There's not a lot of money for it. There's a lot more money on the juvenile side than there is on the adult side for obvious reasons. The public is cares about kids more than adults. Um, but now, that's, I think... Do, now, that sounds very similar to these empathy-generating programs also that, that um, you, know, you, you kind of help the, the perpetrators hear from the, the, the victims about how they've, you know, the, the, the extent of how negative uh, negative they, they've been impacted, and then that can generate feelings of um, sympathy and understanding so they won't do it again. Now, is that similar to what, is that why the victims are involved in the treatment? Uh, I think in the idea of transformative justice involves a survivor of a crime partly for also for the sake of the survivor of the crime and they and the the in some of the purest ideas they they the perpetrator and the survivor will together come up with a way to make meaning of it that usually involves some amount of work done from the perpetrator on behalf of the survivor to sort of um repay their to to do their penance as mm-hmm. we yeah. Okay, they did so that, that on Queer Eye. Did you guys see that episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a good episode, yeah. They, the, no, I'm the, curious. The victim? What, what, yeah, yeah. What? Well, okay, so the First hero. of all, who was victimized on Queer Eye? Yeah. Okay. What's, so, was it a bad fashion choice or something? No, they... <laughs> no. The hero, he was um, uh, paralyzed from the waist down oh, okay. um, due to a, a gunshot mm. injury. Um, and on the show, as part of the... Uh, Karamo's cultural uh, segment he brought the perpetrator and uh, they had a conversation the hero and the perpetrator had a conversation together it was really powerful yeah it was a powerful moment on the show I feel like anytime you bring the the victim and the perpetrator together you're asking a lot from the victim yes right oh, yeah, they don't owe sure. they yeah they're they're i but you know you think what am i getting out of this am i helping society by doing this i mean that's asking a lot yeah and at the same time the survivors who are involved in it often report a lot of sense of healing and and gratitude wow. for the process that's that came incredible. up recently with the um with the with the shooting the brother that um 
um, he got murdered with the with the with the where they went to the wrong apartment, and then he Oof. hugged the he hugged the 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 officer that the the, the off off duty officer that wow, killed. Wow, I haven't heard that. Remember that they were no okay. No. <laughs> Wait, we offering forgiveness. The, right. the, the 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 brother of the the victim hmm. is offering forgiveness. I I haven't heard specifically about this specific one that you that you said, Alan, uh, but I do agree from what I read that there's a lot of uh, instead of saying like a punishment, more like reforming things, and and a lot of the dynamics seems to be changing. Some of the studies that I found talk about programs what the purpose is to help people to reduce recidivism, kind of like educate the inmates inmates about how to avoid those behaviors leading to reincarceration, and do they do that in many ways? Anything from addressing the antisocial thinking and behavioral patterns or we, I think you mentioned already criminalness and and also just like helping kind of like almost therapy like uh, how do they cope with the mental illness what skills they can practice when they face maybe a situation when they're out of you know jail and, and they they don't act the same way so they can go back avoid to go back to, to prison right and others which was more surprising than this is I think they took and uh, you see Santa Cruz might have been the study. Is that they look at the other places in Europe with the um, index of putting people in prison is lower, and they found that the dynamics in between the staff, like probably the correctional officers and the patients itself, is it changed. Like they try to make it more like a social worker approach, where they have a positive kind of like uh, relationship with them. They um, kind of mimics their daily life of a normal person, more freedom for moving, access to rehabilitation pro- programs and no or rarely solitary Yeah, time. you know what, that's that's hitting on it, that it, you know, you're treating the person like very much like a res- respecting like them like a human being. And, and tr- focus on the negative thoughts and patterns and behaviors to try to change that, right? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so yeah, and, and, and that's fantastic, right? And, and, and we can't even begin to talk about that for our country until we have prisons that are you know at their normal capacity when you're when you if you want to talk about human rights for prisoners or even go a step further and talk about really rehabilitating people in a meaningful way you first have to create a situation where we're not just using prisons as you know storage tanks well, and, yeah, I mean, we have floating barges in New York where we're keeping prisoners because Rikers Island is overflowing. And in, 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 our, in our society, how much are prisons punishment? How much are they rehabilitation? And how much are they just protection? Like, what? How do you break down that percentage? Like, in our society, what? Yeah. What What is the common person thinking about? What's the point of prisons? Mm-hmm. I think most are thinking it's punishment, right? And protection. There they're, is. are not a thinking certain... it's rehabilitation. Right, and that's always an obstacle that's hit when you know part of the obstacle that that public prison reform measures face is that people have a certain amount of desire for an eye for an eye and to see blood and uh, and we owe it to the victim. I'm sure right, that's right, what we right. People are not people enthusiastic think. about compassion compassion towards prisoners, and so that's why I w- I'm repeating myself about. Most of the people in our country, in pri- we have the highest, imp- you know, imprisonment rate out of. I don't want to. I don't know how to compare it to like the dictatorships, but you know, out of the countries that we can reasonably compare ourselves to, our incarceration rate is just astronomically higher, and it's people who 
uh, you know, took a beer from a liquor store and happened to have the wrong skin but color. I'm gonna, yeah, go ahead. And then I, I have something that they're trying to do, and I don't remember what this is uh, happening, but it's more like an outpatient competency restoration program for people with minor offenses, nonviolent felonies, and also mental illness, where they basically um, do that process with probably the teaching, the therapy in an outpatient setting. I'm sure there's rules and some sort of confinement. Yeah. And I think the rates, and they studied the data is from 16 states using this met- method. And they said they, they found about 70% of restoration being successful versus an 80% where you're actually like in a state hospital, maybe in the prison itself. So that gives the opportunity to people who have mental illness, maybe misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies to do, you know, do some sort of uh, reform, but not in a, you just, just being a store tank, like you're just kind of saying, and give them maybe a little more opportunity to get reintegrated into society. Yeah, this is uh, this is for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. <laughs> So that's good, though. And mental illness. We have and that. Mental, and mental illness. That, that sounds good. But yeah. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. Okay, so we're having all these really um, innovative programs to help, um, you know, violent uh, uh, felons and um, treating them like, you know, res- respecting them like human beings mm-hmm. um, and then giving them tons of rehabilitation services and education and things like that. At what point do we say, you know, what, that we're, we're spending that's all this amount of money, but what about the folks that are law-abiding? Where's their free education? Where's their free treatment and free therapy? Why aren't we not pouring resources into people that haven't violated the law? Well, and that's where a lot of this stuff is actually... there. That's where there's sort of uh, manipulation going on, right? Because So your argument is totally valid, except for that... Um, a lot of the options, so like what Edgar was talking about, which is largely known as wraparound, and that was, I used to work in wraparound. That's wrapping around someone instead instead of putting them in prison is cheaper than incarcerating someone, right? And a, a lot of these wilderness therapy, a lot of these have been uh, demonstrated in certain um, executions to be, oh, that's not a word I want to use here, in, in certain uh, manifestations to be, uh, less expensive. I mean, imprisoning someone is an extremely expensive proposition. And so... Yeah, it's more expensive to send someone to Harvard than to than pr- imprison them, right? Uh, I mean, sorry, more expensive to imprison them. I believe so, Harvard, yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, okay. So... So, in, in that sense, we you know, we want to rehabilitate people because then it'll protect the population and it'll eventually be a cost benefit to us. And hopefully they can go back to work and start It'll benefit everybody. Yeah, well, contributing to society. That now that that appeals to me also. You know, actually getting out of my devil's advocate mode. That you know, we we need everyone in our society. We need to pull from them the best. And so that kind of we, we mm-hmm. I kind of feel like with with prison, we're just kind of housing them, we're punishing them, we're preventing them from doing crimes for a while. Well, and, but we and we have no thought that they can add anything of value to our. But they community. add, they do add value, right? And the reason that this stays around, I mean, what we haven't mentioned yet is the enormous. Anytime you buy a desk chair, a ladder, anything that says "Made in the USA," a private prison is making profit by paying a prisoner some enormously uh, sorry not enormous minuscule totally small amount of money or nothing for making the you know there's a lot of profit to be had in private prisons and you're getting funding from you're getting profit from two directions and as long as that's around there's going to be lobbies and you know there's not everyone feels that the way that you do 
Yeah, and I, actually, I feel like um, you know, even after the report on federal prisons and how people weren't getting uh, mental health treatment, and there was all these recommendations and everything, we, the recommendations were not enacted. It actually went down. The quality of of mental health treatment in federal um, in, incarceration facilities went down. So I, I feel it's going in the opposite way. Even though we're doing these studies, we're kind of knowing what's going on or we're having these uh, these ideas about what's probably best it's kind of going in the opposite way yeah. so what what so okay so what um what can we do um to um, um as as clinicians um and if we're working in um with incarcerated folks um what what kind of things can we do with families what kind of things we can do with individuals that can um um, maybe the uh, kind of uh, kind of help with this the issue of people that are having these problems and um, they're they're kind of getting back into the system in and out of the system. Is there anything we can do to kind of um, either politically or socially or um, clinically that can can kind of add to the solution to this problem? I'll answer that and so I maybe try to um, wrap this up in a way by just saying like. I think we should validate their pain that they've been through one of the most traumatizing and painful experiences that are, is known to man. That's like trauma-informed therapy. I know for for sure yeah. for people that are in prison. And then and then you mentioned politically. I think we can put pressure on uh, the institutions that be for. I mean, everything from ICE detainment to overcrowding of prisons. This is not the country we tried to set up. This is not how we want to be um, treating people, and we have the money to. You know, we're actually paying more money to abuse more people right now, and we don't need to be doing that. And that'll do it for us here on Let's Get Psyched. We talked about prison, um, different help, uh, different types of mental health treatment programs um, for uh, people in prison and just kind of the state of affairs. Um, thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, uh, Dr. Edgar Ortega, and our special guest host, Dr. Alan Atkins. If you have questions or comments or suggestions or corrections for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elliot Fong. This episode was recorded in the studios of KUCR on the campus of the University of California, Riverside. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <music>